This morning we began looking at the uh, account of the rich man and Lazarus there in Luke chapter 16. As I mentioned this morning, there is some disagreement as to whether this is actually a parable or not. Uh, some things about it make people believe that it is. Some things about it make others believe that it's not. It's not explicitly stated one way or the other, and for our purposes, it doesn't matter. Uh, because Jesus presented this in order to teach. Whether it's a parable or not, that's its purpose. And so we began looking at some of the lessons that we could learn from this account of the rich man and Lazarus. And the first one that I, I mentioned was the fact that oftentimes people have the idea that in, in order to be lost, you have to do something really, really bad. Uh, there was a study done, it's been several years ago now, uh, where uh, people went and they asked uh, a variety of people, it was quite a large number, they said, D do you believe in hell? And if you do, do you believe that hell is in any way a possible destination for you? And there were still, at the time, were quite a few people that, that believed that, that hell was really a place that existed, but almost nobody thought that there was any way that they would end up there. Uh, and they, they didn't believe that very many people at all would end up in hell. In other words, you had to do something really, really bad in order to be lost. And the first thing that we saw was, no, all you have to do is not do good. As Brother Wayne mentioned in his prayer, it's not just the sins of commission, the sins that we commit, the ones that we actively do, but there are sins of omission. When God has said we must do things and we fail to do them, they are just as wrong. And in the case of this, this rich man, there is nothing in Luke 16 there that, that is pointed out to us as being something that he actively did. It's what he did not do. And uh, we need to remember that there are, are sins of omission as well. We also looked at the fact that once death claims us, once our eyes have closed for the last time, we cannot in any way affect our destiny. Death decides our destiny. Once this man died, there was nothing that he could do. You remember he asked Father Abraham, can you send Lazarus here that he can dip his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame? And Abraham told him, no. There's a great gulf fixed between us. We can't go to you. You can't come to us. There's nothing we can do. Now, I find it interesting that once the rich man saw that there was nothing that could be done for him, what was the next thing that came to his mind? Well, I've got five brothers. And I want you to send Lazarus back so he can talk to my brothers so that they won't end up where I am. I've had people from time to time, when you're, when you're talking to somebody that is a, a, a really honest and sincere person, they're a member of a denominational group, uh, oftentimes you get them backed into a corner when you're talking about things that are, are wrong with their group, things that they should be doing that they're not, and uh, things that they are doing that they shouldn't. Uh, and they eventually get to the point where they'll say, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, I get what you're saying, but. Uh, 
yes, I know you're right, but I'm not going to agree with you anyway. But I have occasionally had somebody say, okay, I, I see what you're saying, and I agree. You're right. What you have said is scriptural. You are right. But if I agree that you are right, then that means all of the members of my family who have been members of the same denomination that I'm a member of, all of those people that have died are lost. And I cannot say that. I, I, I refuse to believe that, even though I know it's true. And my response has been, <clears throat> when this has happened, it's not happened often, but it has happened. But my response has always been that, okay, put yourself in the position of these family members of yours who have died, they have lifted up their eyes in torment, they realize that they've been wrong, and they realize that there's nothing that can be done for them. What is the next greatest wish that they have? That none of their other relatives will come to join them. There's nothing can, that can be done for them, but they don't want you in the same place that they are. I've never had a real positive res, uh, response to that, but I believe it to be the truth. And then when you look at this account about the rich man and Lazarus, that's what you see. When he found out there was nothing that could be done for him, his next concern was for his family. I've got five brothers. They are coming to the same place that I am, and something needs to be done. And Abraham says there is nothing that can be done. Once we pass from this life we no longer have any positive effect on anyone. We, we cannot change the way they live. We cannot change the way they think. We've lost that opportunity forever. And I, you know, I said this morning, I, I, sometimes I think about that song, what, what Will I Leave Behind? And it's not really in the song, but, but the idea uh, that I always think of is uh, once I leave this life, one of the things that I leave behind is any positive influence that I could have on anybody else. If I'm going to do it, I need to do it now. I don't need to wait because I may not have another opportunity. You know, that, that's one of the problems with, I, I, I've told people before that uh, uh, I'm a great procrastinator and me and some other people that I know that are great procrastinators have decided that one of these days we're going to get together and we're going to form an organization, Procrastinators of America, but we just haven't gotten around to, you know, getting the, the, the bylaws put together or deciding when we're going to meet or anything like that. We'll do it tomorrow, though. We'll do it tomorrow. The problem is, is the more you say, I'm going to do that tomorrow, I'm going to do that tomorrow, one of these days you run out of tomorrows. You don't have another one. And the bad thing is, is that most of the time when you're about to run out of tomorrows, you don't know it until it happens. And then it's too late. Then there's nothing you can do. You know, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, Paul said, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Usually when you're, when you're thinking about the work of ministry, and uh, uh, ministry just means being a servant. That's what the word minister means. It means a servant. 
And, but most of the time when we're, we're talking about people who are ministering, you know, the first thing that pops into your head is, well, that, that, that's the preacher, right? You know, they even call preachers minister. So yeah, yeah, that's his job. Or yeah, you know, elders do that. You know, so the preacher and the elders. But what does he say here? He himself gave some to be apostles. We don't have apostles anymore. Prophets, we don't have prophets anymore. Some evangelists and some pastors or shepherds or elders and teachers. So why do we have evangelists, pastors, and teachers? We have them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body in Christ. In other words, it's the job of the preacher and the elders to equip you for the work of ministry. Every single solitary Christian is supposed to be a minister. Every single solitary Christian is supposed to be a teacher. You know, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, the Hebrew writer is talking to some people that should have been teachers, but they'd actually gone backwards. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the principles of the oracles of God. Your children, you, now instead of eating strong meat, you've, you've gone back to milk. It ought not to be that way. Every Christian should have enough knowledge to be able to pass that knowledge on to other people. You should teach other people when the occasion calls for it, when, it, when the opportunity presents itself. If nothing else, by your example. We're supposed to influence other people. That's why Jesus said we're the salt of the earth. We have an obligation, each Christian individually, to try to have a positive influence on other people. We can't leave it up to the preacher. We can't leave it up to the elders or the Bible class teachers. It's our job too. We have to do it. And that's why he said, you know, all of us have got to be ministers. You know, one of the things that you find is that in, in the first century, these people understood that. They understood exactly what was being said as far as the principle of, you know, you have to have some kind of a positive effect on other people. In uh, John chapter 1, in verse 35, it says, And again the next day John stood with two of his disciples. The John he's talking about here is John the baptizer. But he's standing with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. That should be the natural, normal reaction. I've found the Messiah. I need to go tell somebody else. And he went to his brother and brought him to Jesus. Verse 43, the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael 
and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He went to Nathaniel and said, We found the Messiah. Come with me. Come and see. He wanted to spread the word. He wanted to pass that message along. It's something that we have to do. If you look in John chapter 4, and, and this is one of those things, John's gospel especially is good for this. Uh, you have a lot more time, a lot more space spent talking about certain events that happened. If you're looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a lot of the time you, you'll see something, there's just a little bit of space given to it, and then it goes on to something else. In John's gospel, you have more time spent with some of these things. Well, in John chapter 4, uh, Jesus is passing through uh, Samaria, and he stops at a well while his, his disciples are going into town to buy food, and he has a conversation with her. And he asks her, first of all, to give him a drink, which surprises her. He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. They don't have anything to do with each other. But then they, they continue to talk. Verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jer Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. The woman said to him, this is verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And what did she do? Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? The first thing she wanted to do was go tell somebody else. And she did. And it's one of those things, when, when, you, when you read through the rest of the chapter, she had a real effect on the people of the city. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. When the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And when you get into the book of Acts, you get into Acts chapter 8 when the, the persecution breaks out against the Christians in Jerusalem. Philip, uh, trying to avoid the persecution, goes down to Samaria. And what does he find? He finds a lot of people who are willing to listen. And you have to wonder how much of that willingness to listen came about because of the conversation that Jesus had with this woman and the conversation she had with other people. Some years later, Philip is able to go down there and preach to the Samaritans, and they listened. They were willing to listen. They were eager to listen. Very possibly, at least in part, because of what this woman did. She spread the word while she was still able to do it. You know, Jesus made the, the, the statement 
that we need to work while it's day. John chapter 9 and verse 4, he says, The night is coming when no man can work. If we're going to do it, we've got to do it now. We can't put it off. We've got to do it while we have the time and the opportunity. Another thing that we find in the account of the rich man and Lazarus is that Scripture is sufficient. We have the Scriptures, we have the Bible, the revealed Word of God, and it is sufficient to make Christians. It is sufficient to tell us what we need to be, what we need to do, how the church is to be organized. Everything we need is in there. There are a lot of people who do not believe that. There are a lot of people who believe that God is going to take some kind of direct action on his own. There is going to be some miraculous movement of the Spirit, and that is what's going to save you. I've told you this before, but I'll, I'll repeat it. But I, I used to hear preachers talk about, you know, you, you run up on somebody and you talk to them and they say, well, I wouldn't take a stack of Bibles this high for what I feel in my heart. And I always thought, well, you know, that's, they made that up. You know, that's just one of those preacher stories that they use to illustrate a point. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But I didn't think it was real. I didn't think anybody would really say that. And then somebody said it to me. And I thought, wow, they weren't kidding. People actually do feel that way. They believe that what they feel in their heart trumps the scriptures. I was talking uh, about this to somebody not too terribly long ago, because I, there, there's a, uh, uh, it's, it, it's not all that far away, but it's a congregation, it's a, a denominational congregation, and their preacher left. Well, they had a preacher come in to fill in that was not a member of their denomination. He was a member of a different one, and they were fine with that. And then just recently, they had a group from another denomination come in. And they were teaching and preaching. And I thought, that doesn't make any sense to me. You know, why are you having people that you don't agree with come in to teach? But it's, it's people understand the concept of rationality. To be rational means that you, you look at the evidence, and when you have adequate evidence, you come to a, a reasonable, logical conclusion based on the evidence. That's what it means. You can draw correct conclusions from adequate evidence. That is being rational. People understand the concept, but they don't do it. I've asked friends of mine that were Baptists, say, what kind of Baptist are you? Free will Baptist, Southern Baptist, Primitive Baptist, and there's two, three, four, five different kinds. I don't remember. But I'd ask them, what kind of Baptist are you? And they'd tell me what kind of Baptist they were. And I said, so you, your, your bunch teaches something different than these other ones. Yeah, they do. And they would explain to me how they were different. And I would say, okay, who's right? Well, we like to think we are. So that means they're wrong. Well, now we wouldn't go so far as to say that. I said, now wait a minute. You teach one thing, they teach something else. So how can you be right and they be right? 
Well, we just don't think that's that big of a deal. That's like a, 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 a teacher telling the students to go up to the board and solve an equation, two plus two equals. And you've got 15 students in the class and they come up with 15 different answers. And you say, congratulations, y'all got it right. Have a seat. Does that work? No, it doesn't work. It's beginning to work in this country these days, but it shouldn't. We understand the concept of rationality and we apply it a lot of the time, but we don't apply it in religion. There's a term for it and it just absolutely irritates me to death that I can't remember what it is. It's a really neat word though. I like neat words. But this one is omni something or other. But what it is, is it's the idea that all religious beliefs are equally valid. Even if they contradict each other, they are all equally valid. You can say this and you're right and you can say the exact opposite and you're right too. That's foolishness, but that's the way people act. That's the way they are. They don't believe in objective truth, especially when it comes to scripture. Now you can argue with people from the scriptures until you're blue in the face and then they'll come off with that, I wouldn't trade a stack of, of Bibles that high for what I feel in my heart. And when you run into that, conversation's over. There is nothing else you can do because they have just said, my feelings are the authority for me. Whatever I think goes, whatever I think is good, whatever I think is bad, my feelings trump everything else. So you just walk away because you can't argue with somebody like that. The scriptures are sufficient. A lot of people wanna, want God to force us into things or God is going to choose who he wants to save and who he doesn't. It's all up to God. That's spiritual laziness. In John 12, 48, Jesus said, the word that I have spoken, the same will judge you in the last day. You're not going to be judged by your feelings. You're not going to be judged by some denominational creed. Jesus said you'll be judged by the words that I have spoken. By extension, that includes the inspired writers of the New Testament, John 14, John 16. The Comforter will guide you into all truth. He will bring to your remembrance everything that I've said. That's what Jesus told him. So what he says is what counts. So we have to abide by what he said, what the scriptures tell us. And, and if we're not willing to do that, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, uh, I, I believe that this is a, a true vision of what, uh, at least in part, what the judgment is going to be like. Because Jesus said, this is the way it's going to be. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, in your name cast out spirits, and done many other wonderful works? This is what we did. Lord, we, we did all of these wonderful things for you. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. They are going to be shocked that they're not all right in the sight of God. Because they were judging themselves by their own works, by their own thoughts, by their own ideas. And suddenly they find out that they're wrong. 
Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who, what, does the will of my Father in heaven. He's not interested in the way I think things ought to be. He doesn't care what my feelings are in the matter. We're told what to do. We're given a choice. We can do it or not. It's up to us. But the scriptures are sufficient. And that being the case, we have to study them. Because there are a lot of people that don't believe that. You have to look into God's word and see what it says. You know, Hebrews 11:6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It can't be done. And then over in, in Romans 10, 17, what does Paul say? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. And without that faith, it's impossible to please God. So without a, a knowledge of the scriptures, you cannot please God. It can't be done. So you have to know what God wants us to do. Otherwise, we're in some serious trouble. You know, the, I like the, uh, the statement there of the rich man when he, tell, when he tells Abraham, he said, I, I want you to send Lazarus to my father's house. I've got five brothers, and obviously he knew what, what state they were in, that they were going down the same path he did, and he didn't want to see that. He didn't want them there. So he says, send Lazarus and uh, have him go and testify to my brothers. And uh, Abraham says, it, they've got Moses and the prophets. They've got the scriptures. And he, no, no, Father Abraham. If one rose from the dead, they'd believe. And Abraham said, no. If they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe even if somebody rose from the dead. Think about that for a minute. That's kind of surprising. It's kind of shocking. If somebody could go down to the local cemetery and raise the dead right in front of you, would you be inclined to listen to what they had to say? Probably. But a lot of people wouldn't. It doesn't matter to them. They're not going to believe it anyway. You know, you have, over in John chapter 11, friend of Jesus is sick, Lazarus. He's got two sisters, Mary and Martha. They send a message to Jesus and they say, your friend is sick. You need to come. And Jesus deliberately postpones his leaving. He deliberately waits. And then he tells the disciples, Lazarus is sleeping. And they say, well, that's good. If he's sleeping, then he's going to get better. And he says, no, what I mean is he's dead. Then he goes. He did this on purpose. So he comes to the home of, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he tells them there in uh, John 11, verse 39, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, and uh, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench for he's been dead for four days. He is dead. No question about it. He didn't faint. He's dead. 
Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. He raised a man from the dead right in front of these people. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are we going to do about this guy? Look at the stuff he's doing. People are going to believe in him because he raises people from the dead. We've got to stop him. How blind can you be? He raises a man from the dead and they're worried about losing their status or that the Romans are going to come. You know, they should have been glad. Okay, he's going to be the Christ. He's the Messiah. He'll kick the Romans out of here. But they didn't think that way. They knew that Jesus raised the man from the dead, and they're trying to do away with him anyway. Some people will not believe no matter what. I've heard people say from time to time, you know, why doesn't God just do something big? Why doesn't he do some really wonderful thing that makes it really obvious that God exists? And then he can tell people, this is what I want you to do. Because even if he did, they still wouldn't believe. I've got a, a DVD of a movie that came out a long, long time ago. I saw it on, on television, I think, once. And it's called The Next Voice You Hear. And the premise behind the movie is that there's a really popular radio program it comes on at the same time every day. A lot of people like to listen to it. And the intro, intro into it is the next voice you hear will be, and then they name the host. Well, all of a sudden, when this radio program is about to be broadcast, it says the next voice you hear will be God. And then God communicates to them through the radio. And all of the governments all over the world are trying to figure this out. Somebody has hijacked the radio waves and we can't trace them. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know who's doing it. He says something about, you know, well, in Noah's day, I made it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And all of a sudden there's a big thunderstorm. And people are, well, is this true? Is this really him? Is, has he really decided to communicate with us? And some of the people are thinking, well, this might be true. The funny part is, is that a lot of people are trying every way they possibly can to convince themselves it's not true. This can't be God. He doesn't exist. I don't know what kind of a trick this is, but it has to be one. People will not believe anyway. Even if God did something like that, they will choose not to believe. And somebody who chooses not to believe cannot be convinced.
You can't make them. And that is one of the absolute saddest things that you can think about. Over in John chapter 12, verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Short-term gain for long-term loss. It's always a fool's bargain. And people do it all the time. I know what I need to do. I know what changes I need to make. I'm just not quite ready to do that right yet. I'll do it tomorrow or the next day or the next day. Tomorrow never comes. Eventually you run out of them. So when you look at the, uh, the account here of the rich man and Lazarus, number one, you don't have to do something really bad in order to be lost. All you have to do is not do the thing that God requires us to do. And secondly, once this life is over, your destiny is decided. There is no second chance other side of the grave. Once you leave this life, you cannot affect your own destiny. You can't affect the destiny of anybody else. If you wanted to talk to somebody, if you wanted to do something for somebody, the time to do it is now. Scripture is sufficient. The scriptures are all we need to guide us from this earth to heaven. But there are some people who would not believe, even if a man was raised from the dead, they just won't do it. And we need to be really, really careful not to find ourselves falling into that pattern. Those are the lessons, at least some of the lessons, that we can learn from the rich man and Lazarus. It may be that there's someone here this afternoon that needs to respond to the Lord's invitation. If you're not a Christian, you've got the opportunity once again to come forward confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God so that you can be baptized to have your sins washed away. If you're an erring child of God, then you need to go to God in prayer. Confess your sin to him from a repentant heart and ask him to forgive you. And he's promised to do that. Or it may be that there's someone here who just needs to come forward and ask for the prayers of those that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing?